The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So tonight is June 6th. Does that sound right? And um, I'm continuing a series of talks based on Ajahn Sumedho's book, The Mind and the Way, Buddhist Reflections on Life. And chapter 9 this is the chapter we're on, and it's mindfulness of breathing. Some of you were here last week, and I talked about chapter 8, which was meditation, introduction to meditation. And I really liked how Ajahn Sumedho in that chapter um, emphasized how important attitude is. And we don't need to just think of this in terms of our meditation practice, but our whole life. I mean, it's nice to have good strategies about how we relate to problems, how we relate to our mind. But the most important thing is the basic attitude that we bring to life, to our meditation practice. So before I talk about this chapter on mindfulness of breathing, the Pali word is anapanasati, which just means, sati means mindfulness. So anapana means in and out breath. So mindfulness of the in and out breath, which is one of the most common, most popular meditation techniques that the Buddha taught. But before I talk about that, I just want to remind all of us, including myself, about this thing we call right attitude or right view. So when we sit down and meditate, do our formal sitting practice, or just go about our life, what is the appropriate view or the appropriate attitude? And of course, if we think about like today, or even this last set, what was our attitude? I mean, often we'll notice, in hindsight at least, we'll notice that I was trying to get something. You know, I was trying to get through the day, for example, or, you know, get people to like me, or trying to calm my mind down during our meditation. But we had some agenda, and then we set out to achieve, to get that agenda, meet that agenda. And so that's not right attitude. That's called normal attitude, everyday human suffering attitude. And instead, we can have a different attitude, the attitude of non-attainment. And when we think about it, what's left if we tease out all thoughts of attaining something, getting something from our sit, what's left? So even kind of going unconscious, you know, just get me out of here, that's even trying to attain something, you know, wanting to escape into some dream or even to sleep, some fantasy. So if we strip away, tease away all of the attainments, all the things we might want, the only thing that's left is to be open. I mean, I guess you could say, well, being open, isn't that something you want? But we don't need anything to be open. That's the, that's the important thing to recognize. Everything we need to be open is already here in this moment. And even if you feel quite dull right now, there is absolutely nothing in the way of being open to being dull. Or even if you think what I'm saying is stupid, there's nothing in the way of being open to that thought, oh, this is stupid. So this is a little different than attainment because it's already here. It's more what we call a realization or a recognition 
So instead of attaining something, we're trying to realize something that's already here. And uh, this realization occurs when we stop trying to attain something. Or what's in the way of realizing what's already here is this very deep pattern of trying to get something from life, from our experience. So all of us are constantly having experience. You know, conditions are being known. And we relate to those conditions with what we were calling wrong attitude or ordinary attitude, which means I'm picking and choosing. I'm trying to get something from the particular conditions of my mind, the particular conditions of my body or my experience, circumstances. In a sense, and this is a phrase uh, that's used a lot in the Buddhist tradition, we're trying to feed off of our conditions to get something from the interaction, from the thought. You know, that's why we revisit dramatic thoughts. It's like we're feeding off of those dramatic thoughts, trying to get some sense of self, some sense of substance. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That shouldn't have happened that way. And so we keep sort of regenerating that thought, revisiting that thought, as if it's feeding us, as if it's kind of making us, delivering something for us. And so we have to tease all of that away. That's what the right attitude is. And the key about this right attitude is this recognition we don't need anything, that our practice has absolutely everything it already needs. We have all the equipment for meditation practice. Right? We have a body and a mind, which means we have uh, conditions not to be confused by, the practice not being confused by these conditions, which means we're going to open to the way that it is. We're going to realize this is how it is. That's all we do. That's our practice. So then when we take up an examination of one of the particular meditation techniques, like anapanasati, or mindfulness of the in and out breathing, then we can just then we can reflect. Well, what does that? How does that right attitude look with mindfulness of breathing? What does that look like? One of the things uh, I'm sure you recognize is if we don't give the mind something to do, it finds something to do. I used to tell this story a lot. Um, about a person who wanted a genie to give him everything he wants. And so he'd go up to the hill, climb the hill to this cave where a great yogi meditated all day long, all night long. And he'd pester this yogi, please, please grant me the boon that I have my own genie who will give me whatever I want. He, I guess, thought that a meditator would have psychic powers or something. Eventually, the, the yogi in the cave got tired of this guy even though she warned him over and over again, you really don't want a gene, let me tell you. He still thought he did. So one day she said, okay, you have a genie. Just don't tell me I didn't warn you. And uh, the genie appears, this very powerful genie, and says, I'll do whatever you want. I'll give you whatever you want. But if you ever stop having something for me to do, I'm going to eat you up. <laughs> And the guy thought he didn't have any problems because he had a long list. But he didn't take into account how quick the genie was. So even before he got to the bottom of the hill, 
he was he realized it wouldn't be long before he was out of wishes. I mean, he couldn't think of anything else that he wanted. So he started walking back up the hill, and then started sprinting back up the hill, and got to the yogi in the cave just before the demon was ready to eat him, because uh, he hadn't wasn't able to think of anything. And so the yogi thought, okay, even though I told you you didn't want a genie, um, I'll give you some advice. So he told the guy to ask the genie to get the biggest, find the biggest tree, take the branches off, pull the tree out, find a big empty field, push that tree down into the ground in that big empty field so it's up, upright, just this long, big pole, and to start running up and down the pole, up and down, up and down, up and down. So the genie took off, got the biggest tree, stripped the branches away, plopped it down in the big field, started running up and down, up and down, up and down for days and weeks and months and years and decades and however long you want to tell the story. And eventually the genie thought, maybe I should have a talk with that guy. So even though he was supposed to be running up and down, he found the guy and he said, say, let's make a deal. How about I just sit down and lean against that pole? If you ever need anything, you just ask. I'll go get it for you. If you don't have anything for me, I'll just be sitting there leaning against that pole. <laughs> and the guy said, you've got a deal. <laughs> and they lived happily ever, ever after. <laughs> so I'm sure you get the idea of this story. The, the genie is our thinking mind. And the characteristic of our thinking mind is it's constantly branching off. You know, one association leads to the next association. Sometimes in a wholesome direction, probably more often in either a neutral or a not-so-wholesome direction. The mind's, the thinking mind's tendency is to proliferate. That's what it does. It's this seeking that I was talking about earlier. It's the mind's habit of trying to get something, to figure something out, to entertain itself, to distract itself from pain. So it's a ceaseless activity, this habit, and it has a lot of momentum. And so this image of the genie is a little bit, uh, makes sense. This guy and then the guy who sets the genie in motion. And so the technique, of course, is what the yogi tells the man to do, to have the genie do. So we give ourselves a particular technique because if we don't, the genie is going to eat us up. Our mind is going to eat us up with worries and planning and hopes and dreams and fears and me painful memories and our reaction to painful memories and our reactions to reacting <coughs> and on and on. So we give our mind something neutral to do. And as I talked about last week, you know, instead of attainment, we're practicing realizing Dhamma, realizing the way it is. So when we're realizing the way it is, anything will do. It doesn't really matter what we wake up to. In a sense, it's like everything's a, every microcosm is just that. It's just something representing the whole. It is the whole. Whether we wake up to the breath, we wake up to thoughts. But seeing things as they are, any object, any condition in the present moment, as it actually is, is, a, is the path to freedom. So if anybody asks you, you know, somebody who doesn't know anything about Buddhism or meditation, and they ask you, well, so do you want to get enlightened? And you say, yeah. 
And then they say, well, how do you get enlightened? And you can say, well, I'm told, what the Buddha said is that we need to wake up. And the person will ask, if they're curious, well, what do we have to wake up to? You know, thinking that there's something special we have to wake up to. And they say, well, we have to wake up to Dhamma. You can use that word, that will impress them. Until they ask you what Dhamma means, you say, well, Dhamma is the way it is. <laughs> you mean Nibbana, enlightenment, all that I have to do is wake up to the way that it is? Because we always, I mean, the big delusion is we think we're already awake to the way, the way that it is. We just assume that. So we have to practice. And so we create this practice called mindfulness of the in and out breath. And it creates sparks because our mind, the thinking mind, is used to being that wild demon, doing this, getting that, you know, and chasing things down. And getting really angry and irritated if it doesn't have something to do until it creates something to do. Like complain about not having anything to do. You know, our mind always finds something to do. Do you ever find yourself in bed where after you've gotten enough sleep, but you don't really want to start your day? And then if you're ever in that situation, watch what your mind does. It's amazing what lengths the mind can do. Now, when you're still kind of dreamy, I find that my mind creates dreams. It's not I'm not really 100% asleep, but there's still somewhat quality of unconsciousness. But enough lucidity that I can... I can see that my mind is desperately trying to keep a dream going. I mean, I feel the tension, the efforting of the mind trying to keep the dream going and trying to figure out like, how to create something fascinating for itself. And it really gives us a sense of what we do all the time. Now, living in the world, especially a city like this, there are a lot of fascinating things. So we don't, we don't have to work so much because in a way we're all codependent and we've created this nifty place that's very distracting. <laughs> I mean, just a mess. I think it'd be pretty funny to tell somebody who doesn't know the way we live all the amazing distractions we have. I mean, just take food for a moment. I mean, we have every taste. And, and even ordinary people like us can afford this amazing diversity of taste experience, smell experiences. You know, and let alone media experiences. I mean, just think about the diversity of media experiences we can have. Auditory, visual, and uh, just the amazing number of ideas we can play with in our mind. I mean, now the, with the Internet and search engines, there's really no limit to what we can use to tickle our mind, to distract ourselves. So then, you come to a place like this, or you read a book about mindfulness of the in and out breath, and it's no wonder the mind freaks out. Like, I mean, it may sound, actually when we're in it, feeling exhausted by all of our thinking and attempts to distract our minds, it might initially sound appealing <laughs> to just sort of like go to a quiet place, like the mindfulness of the in and out breath, just to be with the breath, just to be in the body, with the breath, it can sound, sound appealing until we try to actually do it. And then we realize how much our mind would prefer to do what it always does. So we have to expect the uh, resistance 
Odd and tomato likens it to a wild animal. This is from early in that chapter. If an animal has always lived in the wild and it is suddenly harnessed, it becomes angry and resists the things that are holding it down. Like any wild thing, an untrained mind lives on its own terms, following its instincts and habits. It is of little use to anyone else. However, if you train, when you train a wild horse, it becomes something that can help others. It's the same with our minds. If we just let them follow our habits, if we put no effort into our lives to tame the wild mind, then we are going to be like a wild creature of no use to anyone, not even ourselves. A little later he says, um, you know, just he talks about how we tend not to like these ordinary things. We, our tendency with ordinary things, neutral things like the breath, is to be unaware of them. So the Buddha talked about delusion in three ways. You can think of delusion as our basic habits. So we have the habit, it's a deluded habit, to tense up and reject, to push away, to hate what is unpleasant. We have the habit to want something that's pleasant to last. We get attached to it, want to hold on to it. And this is one we don't normally think of. We have this big habit of not paying attention to neutral experience. And that's as deluding as the other two. These other two tend to get our attention more. This is a little bit more subtle. The, the mind actually has to work at ignoring what's neutral. So one of the neat things about mindfulness of breathing is we're learning to pay attention to something that's usually neutral, meaning it's the breath as a physical experience is not generally strongly unpleasant or strongly pleasant. It's just ordinary. And so we see our mind sort of not liking it. And so pay attention. The mind is very good at convincing us or creating some problem with our, our intention to be with the in and out breath. For example, one of the classic ways we get in the way of this basic practice is we try to get something from the in and out breath, like calmness. So that wanting to get to get calm, wanting to get concentrated, that's not the same as being mindful of the in and out breath. That's called attachment or wanting or clinging or craving. And what that leads to is agitation. Mindfulness of the in and out breath isn't wanting anything, right? Because remember, we're just realizing Dhamma. Dhamma means the way it is, and in this case, the way the breath is. So that's all we have to do, is realize the way the breath is. Now, if calmness arises, then we can notice that as we're watching the breath. But we're not watching the breath in order to get calm. We're watching the breath as a way of realizing Dhamma, realizing the way it is. It's just that we're taking this little piece of Dhamma, because any piece will do. And this is a piece that's relatively available for most of us. And as I said earlier, it's neutral for most of us. 
So it's not, we're not, most people, some are, like if you had asthma your whole life, there may be some deep, deep aversion to watching your breath. But uh, for most of us, it's not a charged object. It's a neutral object. Now, the other thing that gets in the way of doing the practice, the first thing is we're trying to get something. You know, we heard about lights or deep states of peace and tranquility. And then when we sit and meditate, we want to get that. And then that gets in the way of being mindful of the in and out breath. The other thing that gets in the way is we don't think there's anything to get from meditation practice. You know, we don't think, well, we think, well, I know the in and out breath, so maybe I'll figure out what I'm going to do tomorrow instead. Or, you know, whatever else we might do. So even though we're not trying to get anything from the in and out breath, we still are being mindful of the in and out breath. I mean, there's, there is something we're doing here. We're just trying to realize the way that it is, but that's something to do. So we are doing something. There is an activity, and we have to do that activity. And to not not think that there's anything we have to do means that we're going to do what we always do, which usually for us is agitating, because you know we're worrying or planning or judging or comparing ourselves to something else or you know how it goes. So this brings us to right effort and. This is such a great thing to reflect on. If you want to think, think about what right effort is. Like, what is the appropriate effort to bring to your activities in life? Because it's a it's it's a very wholesome thing to reflect on. Because generally we we make wrong effort, and I, that's sort of what I've been talking about the last few minutes. Some of you who were here last week, I don't know if I read it on Wednesday night, but I did on Sunday night last week when I was giving the previous talk on Chapter 8. He says, uh, talking about mindfulness of breathing, he says, it's one of the most frustrating meditation practices ever conceived because it's so hard to get something from it. And yet we think we should be getting something from it. But all we're trying to do is realize the in-breath is like this. The out-breath is like this. The in-breath is like this. And the out-breath is like this. Just realizing the way that it is. It's in that realizing the way that it is that frees us from all the other things the mind, the thinking mind would be doing. There's real peace and liberation in not doing all that we do. And the more we're fully there with the in-breath, this is how it is. This is how it is. The more our whole life disappears, our whole life of problems disappears, our whole life of hopes and dreams disappears, the whole world literally disappears because the world, more than anything else, is just our thoughts about it and interpretations about it and analyses of it. That's really what the world, that's the world we know, that's what we refer to when we say, my life, my world, this world. It's our thoughts and concepts about it. That disappears in mindfulness of breathing. It disappears whenever we're fully mindful. That's why in the Buddhist tradition we say, a moment of mindfulness is a moment of real peace and freedom. It's not that far away. 
but it's not easy either. It's simple, but it's not easy because we're pretty addicted, attached to our thoughts, concepts. You know, another way that Dhamma is translated, one way I said is it's the way it is, the way that it is, the way things are. Another way is just the nature. It's nature. So, you know, it's interesting. If we go into nature, here I'm talking about nature like non-man-made nature. So we go to the woods by the river, for example. You know, all of a sudden, everything, if you just relax your mind a little bit, you might start noticing that everything sort of looks appropriate. You know, even though there may be a tree that's been knocked down by some storm or something rotting or, you know, raccoon, scat or something like that, even though there may be something, nothing looks out of place. Everything seems appropriate. It's kind of relaxing to be in nature in that way because at least in some ways, our mind can let go of that constant, like uh, trying to make it better. You know, oh, it would be nice if that oak tree were a little bit that way. I mean, our minds can still do it. It's like I'll walk through the woods and I go, boy, this would be a lot nicer in 40 or 50 years when the trees are a little bit bigger, you know. Or if that rock, you know, were a little bit more impressive, or that river were a little bit moving a little faster or something. But generally, our mind relaxes in nature. And this is what, we're, what it is more about is that we tend not to conceptualize the woods. But when we're walking through the city and we see man-made things or people-made things, cars and the way people are dressed, and we have a lot of ideas about those kinds of things. We're used to thinking about those sorts of things. And this is the same thing that happens when we're practicing mindfulness of breathing. The more we start to see the breath as a natural phenomena, just the experience, the direct experience, for example, if you're watching the breath at your nostrils, just that direct experience of the touching as the air comes in and the touching sensations as the air goes out, that is as much nature as, you know, floating in a lake in the boundary waters. That's as much an experience of nature as any experience of nature you've ever had that you would consider profoundly beautiful. Really. What makes the experience of nature profoundly beautiful is the absence of our thoughts about it. So any experience, of course, by definition, is nature. It's just that here in the city, we just have a lot more thoughts about our experience. And so we're deluded by those thoughts. It's like an overlay, and we miss the beauty of nature, the wholeness or completeness or whatever words you want to use that describe an unagitated mind or unagitated heart being open and present. And this is available to us, and we can actually train ourselves with the breath. This is the great thing. It's like our walking boundary waters. It's always with us wherever we go. There it is. And the more we do it, the more we can start to trust that this is a, a powerful, beautiful refuge for our life. And it's available.
read a couple more sections from Ajahn Sumedho's book. One of the, the basic problems he talks about here is that we've gotten addicted to excitement. And it's, it's like one of these tra- great tragedies is that we're actually, we actually orient toward excitement, which is a form of agitation in the mind. It's suffering. It's like we've got, we're so confused that we associate feeling alive with being agitated. I don't know if I was telling this in one of the groups or just with a person I was talking with a few days ago. But even before I started meditation, I used to have this theory about, and I heard it somewhere or heard some variation of it somewhere. It's kind of interesting. But we were talking, I was talking to somebody about how, you know how it is when you're in a museum and, you know, you could be feeling great and you go to a museum and you just want to sit down and go to sleep. Have you ever had that experience walking through? And I don't think, I think it's pretty common. You know, you just like, get me to a bench. And it like feels so good to sit down on a bench in a museum. I think museums have discovered this, so now they all have really nice cafes. Because they know people will spend money, and they like to sit. So, anyway, I was talking to somebody, and they said there's this theory that, uh, based on sort of our animal, you know, more primitive conditioning. Did I say this in Wednesday group? Well, that when the, when we're in a safe place... The mind likes to just get quiet. It's like, I'm safe. I can relax. It's like when we get home. You know, oh, I can go to sleep. And when we're in a not safe place, the mind is very bright because we're not safe. And I noticed this uh, when I moved to New York City, uh, and even when I visited before I lived there, I mean, I just noticed. It's like I always felt so awake, so alive, just being. I lived right in Manhattan, and it's just like... It was amazing. It's like a drug experience. And I, and I started thinking, oh, this is what it's about. And then you go to other places, and it has a very different feeling, calming, tranquilizing feeling. And this is what I was talking about a few minutes ago, is that we've gotten addicted to thinking that what's agitating is good. And what's calming is bad. We don't like what's calming, what's tranquilizing, do we? I mean, sometimes we do. But generally, we, we look for things that stimulate and agitate. You know, we like a little cayenne on our food, right? What kind of movies do we like to go see? Now, you may not be in for the shoot 'em up movies, but you may like the sort of intense emotional movies, you know, where there's some big drama. We don't generally like movies of people who sort of get up, you know, and just brush their teeth (laughs) and get dressed, you know, and say hello and do their job. And (laughs) there aren't too many movies like that. They're all about being provocative. So we have to accept this fact of our conditioning. You know, we have to own our illness. We are, we're confused. We think, uh, well, we don't, you don't have to believe that we're confused. But what you can definitely get immediately is that we like excitement, right? We like excitement. 
we go there to feed. We feel good because it makes us feel alive and it takes us away from our confusion in life, what we don't know, what we don't understand, and any pain that we have. It gives us a temporary escape from that. And so when we start to cultivate something that's uh, tranquilizing, that really shows its, we really get that. And so in this section, I was just sort of building up to read this section, you know, Ajahn Sumedho talks about how people look at monks and nuns or other serious meditators, people who practice meditation, and they might think, well, you're just sitting there. But this world, you know, there's so much to do in this world, and you're just sitting there. But in a way, we're actually learning to meet the world, to know the world. It's, it's mostly we live in our thoughts. We're actually not meeting the world. We're meeting our interpretations of the world. So th- this is a, a way to really understand the world, to meet the breath. This is what Ajahn Sumedho says. In meditation, one is recognizing and acknowledging the real world as it actually is. Rather than believing it, believing in it, or justifying it, or trying to annihilate its problematic nature. The real world operates on the same pattern of arising and passing as the inhalation and exhalation. Inhalation conditions exhalation, and exhalation conditions inhalation. You can't have just exhalation or inhalation That is the condition of all phenomena. They arise and pass away. So in Buddhist practice, we are acknowledging the way nature is rather than trying to rationalize with ideas. Now, that may seem obvious, but we miss that. So like, we we might want to get agitated about what's going on in Iraq and what people, decisions people are making about that. But it's really helpful to understand that nothing happens on its own. That that was conditioned by what came before. And it's conditioning what's coming next. And my reaction is also conditioned. And the choices people make, they're also conditioned. And and are conditioning what's coming next. And this is really useful to see when we're dealing with our family issues and our community issues and the international issues and the issues of our own mind. Because otherwise what we tend to do is look for the bad guy and blame the bad guy. Look for the good guy and sort of cheer on the good guy. And that just supports the sort of one thing leading to the next. It doesn't support resolution. What supports resolution is understanding that things are conditional. And it's our react, our reactivity that supports the ongoing agitation. But when we see the conditional nature of things, we understand how to be equanimous, how not to feed what's disturbing, what's agitating, the violence, the craving, the greed. But we have to understand what equanimity is. If we get angry at the angry people, that's just more angry. If we want things to be different than they are, that's more greed. Somehow we have to find a way to be equanimous. And that helps the whole system of greed and aversion unwind. Equanimity 
or you could call it love if you want, uh, open, loving heart, equanimity, is the resolution of anger and greed. Not anger and greed. Anger and greed is not the resolution of anger and greed. And he goes on, when we're watching, uh, we're watching nature when we're watching our breath. If we concentrate on this one thing, it allows us to see the pattern of arising and passing that holds true for all conditioned phenomena in their infinite variety. Things of the conditioned world are constantly changing and infinitely variable. They have different qualities, quantities, and positions in space. Our minds cannot handle such, such complexity, so we have to learn from simplicity. We study something as ordinary and seemingly insignificant as normal breathing. So the most important thing then as we take on this basic practice, mindfulness of in and out breath, patience. Like learning just to be patient, patient with it. Because remember, we're not trying to get anything. And trying to get something is one of the main obstacles. The other obstacles think that there's nothing to do when we're being mindful of the breath. So there is something we're doing, but we're not trying to get anything. So we're being patient with the breath as it is. Trusting the breath as it is. And when that doesn't seem like anything's happening, we don't try something different. We practice being patient with it as it is. That's the key. So when it, when the thought arises in your mind that you're doing something wrong, practice being patient. Do something true. But what we do is we practice being patient with the breath as it is, with the body as it is trusting it as it is. And see, already this is equanimity. I mean, if we, can, if we can't learn to let the breath be the way that it is, how are we going to let our partners be the way that they are? Or our mind be the way that it is? Or the culture or the, you know, our human civilization be the way that it is? How are we going to find peace in this world if we can't just let the breath be the way that it is? So you see, it's profoundly practical to be to do this mindfulness of breathing. We learn all the things we need to learn. One of the, I'll just end with this so that we have time to talk about this, because hopefully people have a lot to say about this, because I think most of you have been doing it for quite a while now. And uh, one of the things we begin to see as we realize Dhamma the way it is, is we see how ephemeral everything is, how things are constantly coming and going. Like, I'm coming to the end of my 40s. But where did they go? You know, at the beginning of my 40s, it seemed like it was going to be a long time. But it's amazing. You know, the 40s are almost gone. And the 30s are completely, I don't even remember the 30s. <laughs> and I'm sure you can relate to that. Maybe not the decade, but you get the idea. And so when we watch the breath as Dhamma, the way it is, as nature, we see the ephemeralness of it. 
And, and the lesson it teaches us is the limitations of all sense experience. This is what equanimity is. Equanimity isn't like something we imitate where everything is just the way that it is, so there's no need to grasp. Equanimity is, is deeply seen. Things can't be grasped. They can't be held. It's the natural response to seeing things as they are. Equanimity isn't something we do. It's the fruit of insight, of seeing things as they are. So if we see the breath as it is, it teaches us a lesson about everything. Because we understand it can't be grasped. It's fundamentally ungraspable, the breath. It's, a, it's an unfolding process. It isn't something. It isn't even a noun. It's only a noun when we think about the breath. Then the breath seems like it's something to know. But it can't even be known as a thing, as a noun. It's change. And just even intellectually, when you think of something that's changing, you see that it's never one thing. Right? Like a stream. I mean, we can conceptualize a stream or the Mississippi River. It seems like a thing. But when we go look at the river, it isn't a thing. You can't, like, fix it. You can only fix it as a concept. So let me leave it here so that we can hear from each other. Just the experiences that you have with the mindfulness of breathing, challenges, successes, or what felt like successes, or any questions that you have about the talk tonight, what comes to mind? It's a challenge. And, and that's good because I'm sure just even the way you described it, it's having the challenge, it's having its proper effect, which is it's, it's uh, creating the condition for the mind to become more subtle, the mind that knows to be more subtle. So uh, it's like, you know, if we listen to this, sometimes you do this with the kids uh, in kid programs, children programs. We'll ring the bell and we'll ask the kids to listen, you know, and raise their hand when they can't hear, hear the bell. Well, it's kind of nice because and you notice you get to that place that Jimmy described, where like, am I just manufacturing the sound, or is it really still? Am I hearing it? And it gets confusing, but but what what you can notice in those moments is the subtlety and purity of the mind, the interest, and uh, and just uh, um, t- 
take refuge in that, like in the in the just the interest in knowing the breath, and don't worry how it manifests. And you're right, the the, the mind will play games with itself, but you'll you'll notice that because it's different than knowing the breath. It's the mind playing games with itself, or projecting something, or thinking about something, or imagining something. Sometimes as things get subtle too, what can distract us is there's often, as the mind gets quieter, it's there's less afflictive states, right? And that's really nice, not to have all that chatter, not to have all that worry and this and that. In. So you want to uh, practice n- uh, not getting confused by calmness and by subtlety not confused by the pleasantness of it. And the way we practice not getting confused by it is we recognize it. And so you might even want to acknowledge it out loud in your mind. Oh, calmness is like this. Pleasantness is like this. Subtlety is like this. Stillness is like this. So you're just sort of noticing what's present in the mind as things get more subtle. And that, in noticing those subtle mind states that are associated with the mind quieting down and the breath quieting down can will help the mind sort of shift down from gross to subtle. And then you can find the breath. Um, and, and let the breath become whatever it becomes. Like, don't have the idea that the, the subtle breath should be even remotely similar to the gross breath. It may be a completely different animal as, it, as you move along. Sometimes I get confused by um, some things that I'm reading in some of the Buddhist books, and, and sometimes even in talks, and there's hindrances. There's so much to actually practice with mm-hmm. that I have trouble deciding within my sit period. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, <coughs> Or forever. Yeah. I mean, go ahead. Well, one one basic strategy. You're right. It's really important to have a strategy and for you to know clearly what that is. Absolutely. So if you have that confusion, it's good to clarify it. I'll just give you a suggestion, but there are other ways. You know, you ask 100 teachers, and you're going to get 100 different answers. But one basic way is to take on mindfulness of breathing as your basic intention. But don't worry. There's going to be lots to practice with, because your mind is going to be disturbed, probably. right? So then you're with the breath, and then something else happens. Well, when something else happens in that moment or in those moments when the mind is disturbed, then you're basically waking up to all of those lists, you know, like the five hindrances or the ten fetters, you know, or the seven factors of awakening. So it might be, you know, one of those things that you're noticing. So you can notice uh, the other aspects of the mind when it's disturbed. And then the more wholesome qualities of mind that we learn about as we read and the talks of the Buddha and other teachers' talks, 
you'll notice the more wholesome qualities as the concentration deepens. So even with the mindfulness of breathing, you'll notice things like interest or energy or concentration or tranquility or equanimity, you know, or what mindfulness is and what mindfulness isn't. Those things will just become more apparent, what faith is. All of those things start to manifest as you practice mindfulness of breathing. There is nothing you stand developing mindfulness of breathing. And even at some point, you might want to do a formal reflection, like reflecting on the impermanent nature of all phenomena, you know, whatever happens to be predominant. But you can do that with the breath, you know, breathing in, breathing out. And, and let's say you have a lot of pain. Well, you can even look at the pain with the breath, you know, breathing in, feeling the pain, exhaling, feeling the pain. So uh, not that you have to do it that way, like bring the breath into other objects. But some people do that. But as a basic strategy to start with the breath until the mind gets distracted, then look at the distraction and return to the breath. And if you can't come back to the breath, then not only look at the distraction, but, but systematically you know, for moments or minutes even, practice opening and not being confused by the distraction, whatever is predominant, keeping you from being with the breath. And then when that's no longer keeping you from being with the breath, then we come back to the body, finding the breath in the body again, connecting, sustaining with the breath. It's a basic strategy. There are many others, but that's a basic strategy. So we're using the breath as the primary place to put the attention but when the attention is disturbed, then we look at that disturbance. And then at the very end of your set, you might not have any particular intention to be with your breath. So maybe the last five minutes, you can practice what we can call open attention, which you just, and it may stay, stay with the breath because that may be its habit, that you're not having, you're not picking and choosing. You're not preferring the breath to anything else. So for the beginning part of this set, you're preferring the breath unless it's a strong distraction, and then you're paying attention to the strong distraction, being mindful of that, and then returning to the breath when you can. But then at the end, we practice a more free way of sitting, which is open attention. Whatever's predominant, we practice opening to it and letting it be the way that it is. So seeing Dhamma the way that it is and anything that's predominant. It can be a thought, a memory, pain in the knee, sound of a cardinal, the in-breath, whatever it is. That's a basic formula. And that's usually what I generally guide in the sit. And, uh, but people might find other ways to practice. There are a number of ways to practice. Thanks, Stacy. Other thoughts, comments, or questions? What are you noticing in your practice? And don't be ashamed because Guaranteed, there are 20, 30 other people who are seeing something similar to you.
being aware of the dullness or being dullness, but actually do something to brighten up. Right? Especially if being with it doesn't doesn't sort of lead to anything but unconsciousness. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. So if you're you're with your dullness for a while and you're still dull, then you might consider pulling your ear home or something. Mm -hmm. Or even reflecting on something. So skillfully thinking about something that brightens the mind. Like, if I spend the rest of my life being dull, you know, I won't have much wisdom when I die. I mean, that, that thought could kind of bring some energy into the mind. Yeah, that's another uh, very skillful intervention. Uh, These little things are surprisingly potent. Also, very slight adjustments to the posture, almost not even that someone else would notice, can energetically uh, shift the energy in the mind. But you should experiment with it. And the smile does not need to be big, but it changes. And and even like a, a couple moments of metta practice, like bringing to mind uh, your cat sitting on the bed, you know, and your warm feelings for your pet or your partner or your friend or the Dalai Lama or whomever can just shift. But the first sort of line, the first sort of way of practicing is just to be mindful of the afflictive states, not to feel like we have to intervene. But when it's not how, when we're, the, the afflictive state is really dragging us down into a state of getting identified and caught up and lost, then it's useful to have a set of interventions, skillful interventions that we can do that change, change the mind. Thanks. I don't know your name. What's your name? Gregory. Gregory. Thanks. Greg, did you have a thought? Well, definitely, you know, the basic answer is definitely not the last, uh, because uh, that's exhausting to be against anything. 
And it's, it's deadening to be against anything in the world, in our minds, in our bodies. That's, that's like, this is the great thing about developing mindfulness. Like, we get this. This is like mindfulness 101 is this lesson, that being against anything is deadening for the mind. Now, of course, we're going to at times because our habits with really painful or, or unpleasant experiences to be against it. But in little ways, we start to learn this lesson that it doesn't work to be against it and we're willing to try something else. Eventually, even with strongly unpleasant experience, we're willing to not be against it. And the other thing is what we discover that it's, it's enlivening to be open to dullness. It is. It's enlivening. It sort of brightens the mind to be open to afflictive states, whether it's dullness or anger. But uh, it's, it's an act of faith. We can't pretend to be open. You know, pretending to be open to dullness, generally we, get, we suffer and we get lost in the dullness one way or another. We actually have to be interested in it, which means we have to be willing to be intimate with it. Because it's nature too. Dullness is nature. Even anger is nature. And uh, we can learn our lesson by being mindful of dullness. We can have insight being mindful of anger. So next week at the beginning of the talk, um, I'll just see if other uh, people have some comments to share about their mindfulness of breathing. So if you, if you don't normally work with a strong intention to connect and sustain attention with the breath, not control the breath, remember, but just to know the breath as a dhamma, as the way that it is, as something that is the way that it is, or as some people say, as it isness, right? The as it is isness of the breath. So we take that on as a, with a strong intention, like to keep returning, to connect, to sustain, and then we'll just see what we learn from it. And we'll talk about that at the beginning next week. And, and then we'll go on to the next chapter. So let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take a breath or two together. And we can appreciate being here, having this center, this group of people, and these teachings, and maybe noticing the feeling of gratitude, and then reflecting on our deepest aspiration for our life, having the wish, the intention to live and practice in a way that supports peace and wisdom compassion in our own hearts and in the hearts of all beings, living and practicing for the benefit of all beings without exception. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.